Hello, colleagues and friends. Olivier Girard here, recording from Ghana. I am an international development professional, and I've been privileged to live and work in West Africa for over a decade. I enjoy conversations on peace, personal transformation, and social change with individuals whose job it is to build a smaller world. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Watson, the Senior Director of International Development at Premise Data. We talk about Premise Data's innovative data collection business model, the fight against disinformation, and advocating for foreign aid reforms. Quick disclaimer, this podcast is a personal project. It is not affiliated in any way with my current employer. Any views, mistakes, or errors are definitely my own. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Chris Watson, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Chris, you're, you're a senior director of international development for Premise Data, a tech firm out of San Francisco, California. Correct. And uh, you're also an advisory member to the Development Data Partnership. You're a board member to Unlock Aid. And I'll try to find out more about these because I, I am curious to know what these are about. You also hold a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations Economics from Bethany College. We crossed paths a few years ago. We were working together in the same firm. And since then, it's only been upwards and onwards for you. And occasionally sideways, but yeah, mostly upwards. And maybe starting there, I presume if you're like me, when you were studying in international relations, you would not have been able to envision where you're sitting today. And so going back to when you started, what were you thinking about then? What were your, your ambitions, um, studying international relations and economics? What did you want to do? Uh, get out of West Virginia, um, which <laughs> I, I wish I had some like grand scheme or plan at the time, but I think the truth is that I grew up in a place where uh, a lot of people, you know, stay if they go to college at all and their families stay and it can be kind of insular. And my whole decision to study international relations in the first place was just to travel more. Uh, so I, I think, you know, by the time I was partway through undergrad, I probably had some ambition of getting honestly more into the national security space, but I didn't realize until, you know, around when I graduated that there was an interesting intersection between international development and that space because, um, so, so much of, uh, what, you know, what both of those kind of like lines of work are trying to accomplish is actually like aligned, especially in many of the countries where, uh, you've worked. So can you walk us through briefly how you went from your graduation to where you are today? What were the major stages of that evolution? Sure. Well, it starts with luck uh, and there's some more luck along the way, but uh, Bethany College is this tiny liberal arts school, uh, but one of the more prominent uh, alumni is a guy named Dr. Arthur Keyes, who founded an NGO that at the time was called International Relief and Development or IRD. It's since been uh, rebranded and uh, packaged as Bluemont. Well, I graduated in 2008, which, uh, is one, you know, the height of the financial crisis. So the job prospects in other industries were not fantastic. Uh, but two is when Obama became president, there was a, you know, kind of redoubling of efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, and that meant that, you know, for IRD, who had been, I think, kind of the premier uh, implementer of USAID programs in Iraq and Afghanistan that they were huge. I think they were the biggest like, nonprofit recipient of USAID funding after the UN. So 
I was able to get a job there because there were a couple other Bethany alumni that Dr. Keyes had hired before me. And so there's like a little bit of a like chain, you know, migration, if you will, into IRD. Um, started there. I was there nine months in the home office and then opportunity to go to Afghanistan came up. So that was okay. the, for me the like real start to this. Okay, very good. And then you transitioned to premise data in, if I recall correctly, 2017, 2018? 2017, yeah. If, if you go to a Thanksgiving dinner, what, what do you say to people, uh, what you do there? What's, what's your Good question. <laughs> so, <laughs> or do you, do you avoid that altogether? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it depends on who the audience is, but yeah, no, I mean, I, well, so first, like what is premise, the elevator version, I would say it's a crowdsourcing platform, the slightly longer Thanksgiving dinner one is that, um, lots of organizations around the world need to collect data out in the field. Uh, doing so is kind of a pain. It can be pretty slow. It can be expensive depending on the context. And it's mostly just like not everybody's favorite thing to do. And so we're trying to improve that by making it possible for any citizen that lives in a place where any sort of market research, academic research, and national development research needs to be done to get involved in doing it. And so what I tell people my job is, is to build and run the portion of the company that works with the international development and humanitarian assistance uh, communities, which um, a big part of that, but probably a plurality is, you know, USAID funded, but we do a lot of work with the UN, a lot of work with uh, European bilateral, multilateral donors, development banks, basically everybody under the sun. I work in the, I would say, peace, conflict, stabilization space. I'm used to qualitative data collections, key informant interviews focus group discussions how does what you do differ from that more i would say traditional qualitative approach to data collection yeah well i mean one the data sets are larger and they are mostly going to be quantitative like one thing that we found is um people that are willing to either like take a survey or like map somewhere using their own phone might not be willing to like write you a short essay and a big text block, and you probably don't want to analyze it uh, that way. So we try to stay away from the types of data that you would collect through focus groups or key informant interviews. But honestly, I think they're a compliment. Like, I don't think we're trying to replace qualitative data, but what we are trying to do, I think, not necessarily like in what you do, but in some other sectors, I think the reliance on qualitative data has led to people that are elites or politicians or, you know, uh, uh, high up in government and like a ministry of health, having like a really disproportionate uh, voice in what ultimately gets done and ordinary citizens not having near as much of one. And so that's where I think the, this type of data collection can become pretty. And so it's app based. It's always been app based. Yeah. You don't necessarily have a in-person presence in a lot of the countries that you collect data in. How, how do you establish your presence? How do you get uh, users to use your app and start collecting data? What's what's the process of launching in a new place? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that Premise did at the beginning of its history that maybe sounded a little crazy to me was just like spend a ton of money on Facebook ads. So, okay. um, you know, in it, it happened at the same time, I think that we started to see social media becoming really popular, even in more like remote parts of low and middle income countries. And now, I mean, 
especially WhatsApp. It's like everywhere, right? But yeah. Um, so we yeah, have spent a lot of money on ads. The pitch has typically been like make money collecting data about your community or make money collecting data when you're going to uh, the market. And then one of the things I think that really changed the game around that type of advertising is that if somebody sees that ad, they can click the button and it'll take them right to the app store uh, or the Google Play store usually. Uh, and it works. Like I was in Ukraine earlier this year and I talked to a guy. He's a humanitarian information management specialist with the Wash Cluster. And he's like, yeah, I downloaded premise from an ad like two years ago. The issue is it only takes you so far. So we've really leaned into more like community partnerships, partnerships with businesses to help um, them advertise in the most kind of like rural or, uh, parts of the countries where we work. There's not enough internet traffic to make adver digital advertising that's effective. And so you're able to work, you mentioned Ukraine, and you're able to work in conflict environments, presumably as long as there's a minimal functioning phone network. Yeah, I, there's some other asterisks on that. But yeah, as long as the internet is there and it's there some of the time, we can. Uh, we place some tighter controls on what data collection will let our partners do. We have a big list of countries where everything has to get approved by somebody in the C-suite at premise. And uh, we, in many places, won't do any interview-based data collection because it becomes significantly more, I think, uh, dangerous to the we, contributors, what we call our app users, data contributors. So. One thing I was curious, because I did see, um, I think, a, a perception survey that was done in Ethiopia regarding the war recently came out. You published a, a two-pager, I think. Is this the opinion of your contributors, or are they surveying other people? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. And to be honest, it's one of the more like confusing parts of premise, because like we do both, but there's a bit of a sort of like progression to this. So like if you download the app, you'll immediately have access to usually two types of data collection. One are surveys about yourself, right? And so in that sense, what we're replacing is more like an internet survey that you would just do through a website or in low middle income countries, it usually would be more replacing like SMS based surveys or what's called computer assisted telephone interviews, CADI. The other are tasks to map places. But what we found is like with some additional sort of training and just like history on the app, we can get people to do more complicated data collection. And that's been both interviews as well as uh, a lot of consumer data collection. So data collection in stores, for example, about the price or availability of goods typically requires, you know, completing at least a short digital training to help you understand the tasks of the data quality measures better. So we do both. Occasionally at the same time, because most, especially older uh, folks are underrepresented on the app. So if you want to build like a nationally representative picture, you typically need to supplement the kind of like what we call opt-in panel surveys. That's sort of what like survey people would call it with actual interviews to, to fill out that demographic. Or it's like if you're only working in 20 villages, the chance that we would be able to build like a representative group from just citizens of those 20 villages is kind of small. And so it's much better to use interviews for that. So you're able to train the contributors and over time they graduate to a level where you're able to send them out and collect information, not about themselves, but they're able to interview other people, but it remains, it remains qualitative. Have you seen any attempts at interference? We'll get to misinformation in a second, but I'm curious to know, as far as the app is concerned, are there attempts by certain groups to enroll a bunch of users and, and skew the data like are is that is that a risk factor where you're operating so 
I do think it's a risk. I think it's just a much smaller one than people would think. So we have yet to see any of this happen. It's possible that it did and we didn't know, but I doubt it, honestly, because for us, the bigger risk is actually like uh, enumerator fraud that like someone would be on the app and they would try to be like pretending to do interviews because it would just be much easier and faster for them. Yeah. And I think that the quality control and fraud prevention measures that we have put in place to, to detect that also function to detect trying to enroll uh, people to kind of skew the data. Um, I also think there's a chance that we're not important enough for like one of these governments to try to, to really mess with. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we do a lot of things like, for example, if you have a bunch of responses to the same survey from within basically the same location, like within like whatever that like last digit is of GPS, that is like absolutely somebody creating multiple accounts to do the same survey. And that's super easy to just uh, automatically ban all of that. So we have a lot of stuff in, like that in place to try to prevent it. I was alluding to misinformation. You know, you're in the business of create or collecting, analyzing, producing good data for, uh, the, in your case, development actors, but across the company, also for private sector actors. How do we respond? I see sitting here in West Africa, uh, I was speaking a couple of weeks ago to um, a fact-checking organization, and they were lamenting the fact that big tech is not investing any resource in countering misinformation and state-sponsored disinformation in, on the continent. Most resources go to America yeah. or Europe. I know this is not necessarily what you guys do, countering misinformation and disinformation, but I was curious to hear your view on this. How can we address this, and how could a firm like Premise help us do that? Yeah, I so uh, let me do the premise version and maybe I'll do a personal answer too. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think from premises standpoint, like one of the kind of two big areas where we've done the most in misinformation is actually having people document things on the internet that they believe to be misinformation. So we've like developed this type of task that lets you um, click a button to navigate out of the app and screenshot something from a private WhatsApp group that you're in or from Facebook that you believe to be misinformation. And then what communications actors will typically do is use those memes in some sort of communication programming to like explain to people that these are misinformation. And I think premise is not the greatest at this compared to some of the like web scraping technologies that you could use. But the one thing that we offer that you can't really do with that is the ability to get it from a private WhatsApp or Telegram group, uh, as opposed to like public social media or true social media, I guess. Um, so that's one. And we've done that both on, you know, like sort of peace, stability, like those related programs, but also a lot of like uh, health, right? Because COVID-19 vaccine misinformation has been such a huge issue. And it's a big part of what one kind of part of um, the organizations that work with my team do. But like, it, you know, bring that out to like large scale, how do we stop this? I'm not super optimistic. I think that you wait it, you wait for a whole generation of people to sort of like grow up in this environment and, and understand it better. And because misinformation has been here forever. The, I think the issue is that the amount of information in the world as a whole has increased. And thus, even if call it 5% has always been misinformation, that 5% is now a lot more information. And uh, I don't quite know what to do about it. <laughs> like, No, exactly. And it's, it's clear that it's much easier to produce misinformation yeah. than to uh, identify it, locate it, report it, counter it, try to message back out 
the right information. Even that people will respond skeptically and say, well, maybe that is this information as well. Yeah. This, this is your narrative, not, um, or maybe it'll just totally take over and ruin all of social media. And we just won't have social media anymore. I wouldn't be totally against that either. But, yeah. Uh, I was definitely. playing around with chat GPT, uh, earlier this week, just like instructing it to like write emails for me and seeing how well it could do. And it's like, it's so powerful. It's like, what's it called? It's chat GPT. So this is the big, uh, kind of like, uh, language model AI that's developed by open AI. So you can just like write a prompt. Like I told it, like write a cold outreach email about premise. And because it's been trained on literally the entire internet, uh, it'll just like write an email for you that like I could send to somebody saying like, Hey, this is premise. I'd like to talk to you. And then somebody else on my team said, write it in the style of Darth Vader. And it did it. Like, it's hilarious. Honestly, <laughs> we're like all cracking up, but, but yeah, it's like at some point we might, you know, so much of what's actually on the internet might have been written by an AI and, uh, I don't know. Well, the, the, the software I use to edit, um, podcasts like this audio, it has an AI capacity to generate your voice. So if it, if you give it enough sample of your own voice, it will, and you can then type script and it will word it like you would say it. Um, so technically you could create a whole fake conversation between a host and a guest if you have enough material to work with. So maybe That's I'll turn this insane. into a five hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Just using what we record. Oh, exactly. You know, when we, when we talked ahead of this, I, I had mentioned to you my interest in locally led development. How does a firm like premise respond given that your model is, you know, tech based and therefore perhaps if I can call it top down, I don't know if you would disagree with me on that, but the, the model is not from the bottom up or how how do you respond to this this challenge yeah um a few ways but I, I think you're correct in the sense that like so the average user of premise in terms of like the person asking the questions right is somebody with a research background that um may often is not from ghana or whatever country in which they're collecting the data sometimes they are Right. But it's typically it would be a program kind of like run by like an expat, but maybe like the data analysts that are using it are from there. Um, and so in that sense, it can be very top down. Um, of course, the actual data collection is what we're trying to do is remove a lot of the basically the middle management of data collection so that the people who live there can be the ones that get paid to do this and, and can get a higher percentage of the overall money. So I think that that's one part of our model, but but it is an issue. One thing that I'm really starting to look at now is, is it possible for people to buy premise from a local organization as like a distributor, which is something that um, Esri, they make like ArcGIS has done. So at least if like a program like yours wanted to work with us, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need to touch premise directly at all. You might be able to get it from a Nigerian organization that then also provides, you know, like data analysis or reporting type services on top of it. But I think until such point that you can both download our app and be the one to collect data or anybody in the world can log in and create their own data collection, it'll be hard to kind of make that truly like local to local connection. Do you think we could do more about getting the results of the data back to the communities where the data was collected, though? Um, but I, we unfortunately, yeah. I don't think I've made a ton of progress on it yet. Yeah, and I, no, I would agree, and I, I think it's that's clearly s something that I uh, 
I've been thinking a lot about as well is often even our, our reporting it's geared towards a donor uh, towards Washington or London yeah. or wherever not so much geared back towards the communities and we make a lot of assumptions about maybe them not being interested but I, I do think that um, it can if it if it's done the right way then um, if they have access to this data they can really use it for advocacy purposes and we've had some success about that here in the last couple of years supporting locally led research and then local organization using the research to advance their own advocacy goals and so but i think it requires i mean since you are providing a service to donors or big uh, philanthropies it's also their job to make sure that they take what you yeah. produce for them and, and take it back right um so it's not all on you chris <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we could probably do some things to make it easier right like i'd love to get to a point where you know we had the ability to convey data through our local country like facebook pages which is kind of how we do a lot of community management and just let anybody that works with us like opt in to having their data available there too and not everybody will check that box but some probably will right um yep. that would that would go a long way I mentioned in the beginning, you're, uh, I think, an advisory member to Development Data Partnership. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I want to give a, a shout out to some folks at the World Bank who I, I think have come up with just just uh, incredible ideas. So um, Holly Crambeck is the one who runs this. And uh, the idea is there are a lot of tech companies that are either sitting on or have the ability to create data that is really useful for folks involved in you know, development or humanitarian assistance. And that's not just like donors, but also country governments. And then simultaneously, there's a lot of people at uh, the World Bank, at the IMF, uh, the regional development banks that are pretty hungry for data. So, she and her really great team created this development data partnership. It's like a two-sided partnership. So on one end, you've got those big donor organizations. And on the other, it started with like pretty big tech firms. So Meta, Google, Twitter, um, but has since come to include a lot of smaller ones. Uh, Primus is one of those. And we provide uh, either pro bono data or, or and I should say, uh, the ability to kind of work with us under a common like data licensing agreement. And then they make all of that data uh, sort of available on advertisement to those organizations and they put in research proposals. And then if I click yes, they do it. And so, but since it's, you know, the World Bank and IMF are kind of the two biggest ones in here, you know, they're really using that data in conjunction with different government ministries, either for everything from like transport planning, you know, through health service delivery. Um, and they've got a pretty cool fellowship program in place to kind of like second researchers to work with their partner governments. So in that sense, I do actually think it's much more locally led. Um, I wouldn't say that I do a ton of advising. I, I think, uh, you know, premise is a member partly because we're giving away pro bono data and I try to help. I also try to help raise awareness of it, right? Marketing is probably one of my better skills. So yeah, thanks for so letting me letting me shill for it on here. But yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and you, you're also part of something called Unlock Aid. What is that? You're yeah. a board member there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That one I, I'm, um, takes up a little bit more of my time. Uh, Unlock Aid's um, belief and kind of agenda is that the way in which international development programs are designed and run have not like kept pace 
with the challenges that we're facing. And in particular, they the rules have not been changed enough to allow for kind of non-traditional recipients of funding to become implementing partners. And we think, you know, the biggest place for that is local organizations, right? Like uh, so much of, if you look at USAID in particular, right? What USAID is asking local organizations to do is like become, you know, government prime contractors. And instead, you know, we think USAID should be uh, changing their rules or frankly, Congress should be writing laws to change it for them. USAID doesn't have the power to do this all the time to make it easier for these types of organizations to work directly with aid. And um, what I think is really interesting about this problem set is that the issues faced by local organizations are the same ones faced by tech companies. Uh, and that like we, especially those of us that have commercial businesses need, need to have a certain business model that is a little bit of a square peg and round hole when it comes to how USAID does business. So in that sense, it's kind of an alliance between local organizations, which do make up the majority of the membership um, and tech companies who have a shared agenda of trying to change some of the rules. And are these all U.S.-based local organizations, or it's an international? When I say they're all, you know, they're they're all Ghanaian, Kenyan, whatever, right? Like okay. um, that's the more than the large majority of our membership. And is there a, a causality relationship between Unlock Aid and and the current push for localization, or uh, is that is it all coming together at the same time? How did the, how did that coalesce? Yeah, coming together at the same time. Um, it, it, I, I don't think we can take that much credit. Yeah, but uh, it is fortuitous timing. From what you're reading, from what you're hearing in your conversations, do you feel we're going in the right direction in terms of um, how they want to implement this and pushing more funding toward local organizations? Is that, or do you, do you have another approach to it? So I think, I think we're getting there, but I do think the big issue is that if Congress is going to have to get more involved if we want local organizations to be able to work with USAID on the local organization's terms, right? So the push to get more money to local organizations and have those programs, you know, actually run by them as opposed to being like a subcontractor or grantee is there. But one example I've seen is like, I have a friend runs a Kenyan organization and um, she's got money from, I think, three different donors, one of which is USAID. The each of those donors requires separate independent audits before she can get the money from them. And the cost of running three independent audits when the donor won't let you incorporate those costs into your overhead will almost bankrupt you or will bankrupt you in some instances, right? So I think there's all sorts of things like changing the rules to be able to accept an audit that was done for another donor, but maybe like the standard of the rules around how that was done uh, differ um, or allowing for other business models. Like if you have like a, uh, sorry to reference them, but blanking on their name, but the Gates Foundation does a lot of work in Nigeria with a consulting firm that I would describe as like a true consulting firm, right? Like the McKinsey of Nigeria or whatever. Well, they don't want to necessarily do cost plus fixed fee contracting, right? That's not what they would do normally. Same as that's not what McKinsey does here, right? But uh, yeah. 
unless you know USAID changes the rules to be able to work under those terms, they're missing out on what is probably like an extremely you know high-powered organization full of a lot of the smartest people that could be working on this. So, so what do you do in practice? Is it is it advocacy work? Are you are you like trying to meet with USA leadership or Congress? Is that that kind of lobbying? So. Um, Walter Kerr, who's the head of Unlock Aid, uh, he would just testified uh, this past week. So definitely working with Congress, um, meeting with the USAID front office, uh, but also, you know, for my personal role in it, uh, trying to help recruit, right? Like getting the word out to local organizations that there's a, there is a, there's a shared advocacy platform out there that is for you is, uh, is kind of hard, right? So um, that's one of the places where I think I've been able can uh, help contribute some well maybe yeah, so uh, if you we'll know make... any organizations you work with yeah huh. tell them well well the last couple of years i think we've we've been in partnership with over 70 organizations so not necessarily all of which i would recommend but many of which i think would be very interested in, in what you're doing i think when one of their main criticisms is their inability to plan because the funding is also quite short term and so yeah. they rarely unless they're like a sub on a big a bigger contract that's multi-year typically the funding is under one year or even last six months, three months, and it makes it very hard to plan, retain resources. And um, I've seen the the wife of Jeff Bezos has been granting money or giving away money, but and a lot of the organizations are using it to build an endowment fund um, mm. to to allow for long term funding. And I don't know if you've uh, you came across that, but that sounds I have evolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. I'll read about that. When you started at Premise Data, I remember you were by yourself building the practice, and now you have a team of nine. I don't know if you want to tell us about the process of building a team and any hard lessons in doing that. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's been hard. I think, well, look, when you're by yourself, you have to do everything. And so for me, that's been everything from like raising awareness, marketing, public speaking through procurement. And I don't think I have done a good enough job of being like, okay, now that we're growing, not every, I don't need everybody to do everything. We can, you know, start to rely a little bit more on other parts of premise where in the past I was kind of hesitant to, because I was like, oh, these people, they don't know international development. They're going to like say the wrong thing in a meeting. Um, but uh, rely more on other parts of the organization and then hire people that can be more narrowly focused than I was ever given the luxury of being. Um, that's been hard. I think um, my team is, even though Premise is a pretty in the office organization, but we have many offices. And so my, my team's geographically distributed and I, I don't quite know what the answer is, but having like, you know, I, I wake up, I have the part of my team that's in either London or Geneva that like needs a whole bunch of stuff from me from the second I get out of bed. And it ends with the, the one person on my team that's in our San Francisco office after I'm supposed to stop working. I haven't figured out how to manage that part yet, but wake up early and go to bed late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go back to where you started and where you are today, and we, we talked a bit about that at the beginning, but what do you think made you successful where you are right now? What are the skills that differentiate you from others or, or put it in another way? If you had to advise younger people wanting to do the kind of work that you're doing, what skills should they focus on? Yeah, for, I think, two main things have really benefited me one is i don't give up very easily um and my first year of premise was not the 
best time of my life, honestly, from like the professional perspective, because I had like serious doubts whether this was going to work. And in particular, I was very worried that like trying to get people to adopt or be okay with our to them strange business model was a fool's errand, but it turned out to be to work. So I think just like grit is number one. Um, and then for me being kind of like a self learner, I didn't really know anything about tech, especially sort of like tech business models, go to market, like all of that stuff. When I joined, um, probably benefited a little bit by a serious case of imposter syndrome. <laughs> there was, there was one or two people when I first started premise that are no longer here, thankfully, or was like had a very, you don't belong here kind of attitude, but it did push me into like, just consuming so much. I was like, okay, well, like what do people who work in tech read, right? Like how did they figure this out? Right. And you, you learn, they all read the same, you know, Y Combinator blog posts and the same books and like, yeah. And then I just read them and I realized like none of this is rocket science. Like it actually makes a lot of sense once you get into it. So. And probably your communication skills as well, right? Like your, and your BD experience, you're, you're used to writing and selling and convincing. And, um, mm. I'm sure that, I'm sure that came in handy to build a, build a practice. Yeah, I probably did. That's the part that comes maybe so naturally to me that I don't think that much about it, but yeah, I don't know. I just like to talk yeah, to I people mean, anyway. Right. So <laughs> absolutely. And I, but I, I think it's underestimated because I think, um, a lot of people don't realize that and it's hard to learn. You can, mm. I think you can learn through practice, but, um, in my case, it's really what made the difference, um, in terms of where I am today just the ability to communicate up and down and left and right and keep everybody informed, reassured and, uh, convince them that I can resolve some problems when they arise. <laughs> yeah. As we're concluding here, I'm just curious to know if you, I, I'm always up for good recommendations for podcasts and books, anything you've been reading or listening to that I should pay attention. Ooh. Okay. I do have one that, I wouldn't recommend to everybody, but I think for you, I definitely would. The best book I read this year is called Say Nothing. It's called, it's uh, by an author named uh, it's Patrick Radden Keefe, right? If I'm wrong, maybe you can edit that out. But uh, sure. And so <laughs> Say Nothing is, um, it's about the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And it's based off of a ton of like recorded material with um, members of the Irish Republican Army, IRA, that had been kind of like socked away at the University of Boston until such a point that they had passed away because they were so implicating of them. Um, but the, the reason I recommend it is because, you know, before premise, like I did, the, you know, a lot of the same types of places that you were, right? Like I did Afghanistan, I did Niger, Mali, Burkina. And I think in all of these contexts where you have insurgencies or you have, you know, some sort of like, you know, uh, slow burning civil war, there's still in cultures that I find it hard to truly identify with. But that's not the case in Ireland, right? Like you can really understand how it is that people came to participate in this, you know, and in, in this violence. Um, Whereas if this book were written about the Taliban, I still think I would not be able to identify with it in the way that you can, but it's an English speaking country with a culture that's being American. That's so similar to mine, right? And Canadian too, I'm sure. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, uh, well, you've said it on the podcast. I will, I will check it out. Say nothing. 
and um, yeah, say yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Well, Chris, yeah. uh, it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot for right. having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, we'll see, we'll see where it takes us. This concludes our second episode of OG's Smaller World Podcast. Thank you for listening. I am grateful and I hope you benefited in one way or another from this conversation. If you enjoyed my discussion with Chris Watson and you want to find out more about some of the topics we discussed, I'll paste some links on the YouTube and LinkedIn social media posts for the episode. Before you move on with your day, please click like, subscribe, and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. Final word of wisdom. Don't forget to be grateful for what you have in your life. Cultivating gratitude is the most direct path to happiness. Olivier here, signing out.